0: My title this morning is the beauty of forgiveness, and it's interesting. I think uh, this has come up. It's you know I I don't always talk to everybody. I I sometimes tell a few people or whatever what I'm going to share on. Um, But as as we were praying in the back before service this morning, I think Cindy kind of shared some things that were in line with what I want to look at in forgiveness today, And, and certainly. The last word that Jordan had this morning about that closed fist, maybe she even thought that might be forgiveness. I think God's just speaking to us something along those lines. Before we can really look at how forgiveness works as an interrelational dynamic between us in in terms of forgiving one another, I think it's so important that we we grow and and come to a, a, a really clear understanding and we're able to really embrace God's forgiveness in our own lives. You know, we, we, we again, we talked this morning about how some of these things like like God's grace and forgiveness towards us, we go, yeah, yeah, we know that we know that we've heard that we've heard that. But but do we really take those things on? Do we really walk in that all the time? And, and sometimes um, I'm not sure that we do or may, maybe we forget. So I want to just pray real quick and then we're going to look at a passage in Luke 23 and talk really, really fast about forgiveness. Father, thanks so much. You're good, and uh, you're, 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 you are, you're really good. You're better than we think. And so we are honored and blessed this morning to really receive and, and grow in understanding of your forgiveness in our lives. Uh, would you speak life and truth into our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our spirits and our souls today, Lord God. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to read a passage in Luke 23, and I'm going to—I'll actually stop along the way. I want to just give you a little bit of commentary as we go, and then we'll—we'll we'll talk about forgiveness at the end. But this is um, the crucifixion of Jesus. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made. And carry it behind Jesus. Typically, when someone was crucified by the Roman government, they would carry their own cross. They actually didn't carry the whole cross. They carried the, the cross piece. The upright was in place already. But um, we don't know exactly why Jesus didn't carry His own cross. Speculation, and I think it's probably accurate as this, that uh, Jesus had been beaten so badly and was in such a weakened condition physically that He was actually unable to carry it. And so the Roman government, of course, could do whatever they want. We don't know a whole lot about Simon. He's just a guy walking in from the country. He wasn't necessarily good, bad, or anything else. But he got roped into, uh, man, a horrible job of having to carry uh, this cross for Jesus up the hill. large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Uh, it's interesting, you know, just prior to this, of course at his trial, we saw the crowds of people saying, what? Crucify him, crucify him. And uh, we maybe tend to think that was a universal perspective, but it really wasn't. There were a couple of different dynamics going. In fact, very likely, um, you, you know, in some of the protests lately and during the a lot of the political campaigning that went on, there, there were like um, agitators that were handpicked and placed and actually paid in some cases to go in and stir the crowd up. And it's very, very likely that it, it, at Jesus' trial, this was true as well, that the uh, the Roman government or possibly even the, the religious right had brought in folks to agitate the crowd in terms of crucify Him, crucify Him. There were also a large number of people uh, that we read about all throughout the Gospels whose lives were incredibly positively impacted by Jesus and who were, as we see here, very clearly disturbed and upset at the reality of what was happening to him today. Jesus turned to them, turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What Jesus is really saying here is, look, if they're going to do this to me now while I'm here with them, what happens later when I'm not here in my physical presence anymore? And I think, you know, as we look at this from our perspective now with the the life of Jesus on earth, 2,000 years in the rearview mirror, I think we see that has come to pass. That... Um, people have grown uh, more and more callous and distant and less and less concerned. And we see a lot of people today who really don't uh, take who Jesus is or what Jesus has done very seriously. Now, of course, in the church there are those that do, but I think there's a lot of sentiment in society today that's very anti-that. And so I think he was prophesying uh, correctly here. That life would get worse before it gets better. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Um, this particular location was called the Skull for a couple of reasons. One is it was kind of shaped like that. So when you you know you ever stand off at a distance and look up at a hill and you kind of see it. And it had sort of that image to it. But it was also, of course, the place where crucifixions took place. And it was a place of death and uh, not a uh, friendly place to be. So it was called the skull. Um, The other gospel writers use the word Golgotha, which is the Aramaic word. Uh, It was named in Aramaic. Um, Luke is writing to a more Gentile audience, and he doesn't assume that the Gentiles would know Aramaic, so he translates it to Greek for them. And calls it the skull. Um, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. Um, So the guards that were responsible there that day, that were on duty, were rolling dice or gambling in some way. Kind of uh, making light of the whole situation. And... uh, that seems so callous to us, but you've got to remember, these were uh, hardened men who did this every day. Death was a way of life for them. It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever talked to uh, first responders firefighters in particular who have been to any number of accident scenes and fires and seen so much trauma and so much tragedy. And at a given point, you begin to shut down, and you begin to just turn your heart off to that stuff. And those are good people who are there to help. These guys were not there to help. They were there to cause harm, and yet their hearts were so hardened that this was just a joke to them, and they were they were just casting lots. The other thing I think that we need to say here is that, you know, in every... Um, artistic, uh, rendition or interpretation of the crucifixion of Jesus. We see him always wearing a little loincloth, kind of covering himself, being covered up there. But that is really a, uh, a, a distortion. It's a nicety. It's a convenience done on our behalf so that we're not, you know, looking at the Son of God n- naked. But the truth is, you were crucified naked. And the reason is that this crucifixion was done as a deterrent to crime. So if you're a criminal and you see that, you go, I don't want that to happen to me. So it was not only uh, excruciatingly painful, but it was intended to be as humiliating as it could possibly be. You, you know, you wanted, they, want, they wanted to make a public spectacle of this person. And all the more so for a Jew... Because the, the the Jewish tradition, they were much more modest than some of their pagan or Gentile neighbors might be. So this was a profoundly uh, humiliating and embarrassing and painful and everything you can imagine times ten uh, situation and circumstance to be in or under that day. In crucifixion, you typically die by suffocation, you you. Your body actually collapses on itself until you can't breathe anymore. And so towards the end, what has to happen is a person will lift themselves up to take a breath and then collapse back down again uh, because they're too weak. And as they grow weaker and weaker throughout this process, and it takes time. It's not a quick death. You know, today we, when, when someone receives a death penalty and they go to the gas chamber or whatever, we want it to be as quick and painless as possible. This was as protracted and painful as possible. Exactly the opposite of that. Um, The person grows weaker and weaker over time until eventually they can't breathe anymore and they succumb. And Jesus takes one of those hard-earned, precious, final breaths to pray to His Father in heaven and ask Him to forgive the people who are crucifying Him. And so the question, I think, for us today is, do we believe that God is that good? we believe that He would take a dying breath and ask for forgiveness for these people who tortured Him and humiliated Him and were now putting Him to death? that That's the question we have to wrestle with. In the New Testament, there are... Um, there are two Greek words that are both translated forgive in English. And while technically they mean the same thing, they have a slightly different connotation. There's a little bit of a different nuance on them, and it's very important for us to understand that. They both uh, carry with them the idea of releasing someone from a debt. The concepts of sin and debt we're, we're very connected in ancient Judaism. When you sin against God or against uh, another person, and, and ultimately against God, you incur a debt. And so, to forgive is to release from that debt. So, if uh if if I were to borrow a hundred dollars from Brogan, that would be a, a kind gesture on his part. And then let's just say that I I come on hard times i lose my job uh you, you know my my car breaks down and i get behind in my payments and i i don't know what to do rogan's aware of that and he comes to me and he goes hey don't worry about it forget it I, you don't have to pay me back it's done it's over uh he has forgiven that debt and that's the the concept that we see it is a it is a unilateral and unconditional forgiveness that that the person doesn't necessarily look for or ask for or do anything to get. It's just given to them. Uh, that's what Jesus did on the cross. These, these people had not repented. They hadn't confessed their sin. They weren't turning away from it in any way. They were in the midst of crucifying Him. And He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And we see this in the life of Jesus quite often. He forgave under those sort of circumstances on a very regular basis. Um, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is in Mark chapter 2. You know, when the, the guys bring their paralytic friend to Jesus and they, you know, they, they can't get in the door because there's too many people, it's a crowd. So they're incredibly uh, creative and show a lot of ingenuity here uh, and, you know, a lot of just whatever because they got, they've got a guy on a stretcher. And they got to get him up onto the roof first of all, and then they got to cut a hole in somebody else's roof, which uh I don't know if that's good, but they do, and then they got to lower him down through the roof, the hole in the roof to get to Jesus. But that's what they do. And it's an interesting dynamic here because the the story, we don't know anything about the guy I don't know. And and I'm not saying he didn't want to go. I'm just saying we don't know if he was a willing participant or not. Have you ever had a friend who is so out of sorts, you know, that they just kind of are pulling away, pulling away, pulling away. and, And you want to get him to God somehow. You're trying to get him to Come on, you got to, you got to get your, you know, and and so I don't know. I sort of picture this guy. Maybe he's given up. He doesn't want to do it. He's, he, I don't want to go. But you're on a stretcher, so you have to go. So they just pick him up and take him. <laughs> neener, 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 you know. And they get the guy to Jesus, and they lower him through. And Jesus, it says, saw their faith. And I don't know who there is. Is it the four guys, or is it the whole group, or who is he referring to? But in any case, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the guy didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't do anything for forgiveness. We don't even know if he wanted to be there, but Jesus just forgives him. Probably a more uh, profound illustration of this is in Luke. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. uh, And let's just doesn't say it explicitly here. Luke is being very gracious, but uh, pretty much universally everybody agrees this guy was a prostitute. She lived a sinful life, and she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and again, the Pharisee invited. You. So, first of all, she's a prostitute. Second of all, she's a party crasher. Okay? She wasn't invited. Uh, she just showed up at the party and let herself in and then begins to behave in a fairly disruptive manner. Uh, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. I love this because. Simon's thinking this in his head. He doesn't say it out loud, but Jesus knows what he's thinking about. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. And then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Dare I say that uh, her behavior was a bit scandalous? I, I cannot think of any situation where anybody in their right mind would not be a little bit disturbed by this. Okay, right? You're at a dinner party, you get some friends. A woman who is known to be a prostitute comes in and begins to behave in this manner. What are you thinking? I, I, I mean, I'd be a little uncomfortable. If I was Jesus in that situation, what's happening to me? I'd be very uncomfortable. Um, you know, and it's easy for us to project onto the Pharisees, but I, I you know, at some point here, I'm thinking, that, man, I don't know this—it's a bit much. Um, I don't know. Clearly, she recognizes Jesus for who He is, and she has a heart of love for Him right here. But there's there's no indication. In any way that she's repentant or has confessed any sin or anything like that, and yet again Jesus forgives her unconditionally and unilaterally and without her uh, asking for it. See, that's the repentance of God, and that's that's the the one Greek word. The nuance is a unilateral, unconditional, just bestowal of forgiveness. The other word, and the way that it's nuanced, it deals more with the restoration of relationship. And we all know this. Sin will put an obstacle in a relationship, right? There's a blockage in the relationship because of the sin. And in this sense... uh, Forgiveness becomes conditional in that it requires the obstacle to be removed. So there's a process of confession and repentance that takes place uh, for the forgiveness to be bestowed. So if you go back to my money illustration, my borrowing money, uh, in the first situation, uh, the person I borrowed the money from just says, no, you're, you're, you're clear, you're good, you're, you're good to go, you don't have to pay me anymore. In the, in the second nuance, um, I would go to them and I would say, hey, I'm really sorry. I just, I don't have the money to pay it back. I'm, I'm so sorry. I wish I could. I can't. I don't know what to do. And then they would say, so you're forgiven. So there's a little bit of difference there. What's a mother to do? Let's stand.